My name's Clover, and we need to talk about eco-anxiety. Some of you may be wondering what eco-anxiety even is, while others may be struggling with it right now. This podcast is for both of you. For those curious listeners who want to understand the impacts of climate change on our mental health, this podcast is your crash course. Each week on the show, we'll be exploring a different face of the climate crisis, from the food we eat, to our relationship with media, our addiction to fossil fuels, and everything in between. I'll be speaking to leading experts and global companies about challenges and solutions. You'll also hear from young people around the world who feel eco-anxious, and hear from our resident psychotherapist, Caroline Hickman, about how to navigate some of these feelings. And for those of you who feel eco-anxious right now, I'm here to tell you that you are not alone. And far from being a sign of weakness, your eco-anxiety is totally normal. In fact, it's a sign of your empathy, proof that you are awake to the issues. I believe that talking about our eco-anxiety is the first step to turning it into agency, community, and vision. So let's talk about eco-anxiety. On the previous episode, we dived into the role of food, featuring Jamie Crummy, founder of Too Good To Go, as well as Christine Doherty, the VP of Agriculture at PepsiCo. We heard from our resident psychotherapist, Caroline, about why food is one of the easiest changes we can make for the climate, yet also the most divisive. If you haven't already, be sure to check it out. Today's episode is about waste and consumerism. I grew up in a society which fetishized consumption. The more you have, the bigger, better, cooler, sexier you are. But the dirty side of consumerism is the waste it creates. When I first started thinking about waste, it was like picking at a ball of yarn that I couldn't stop untangling. I started to think back in horror at all the things I'd thrown out mindlessly. Phones, chargers, toys, clothes, and the stuff I continued to throw out every day, like food, packaging, sanitary pads and tampons, or even PPE masks during the pandemic. Then, I thought about all the invisible waste created before those products even ended up in my hands. But hope was not lost because I learned of this amazing invention called recycling. So long as I just put my waste in the right bins, it'll all get turned into something new and better. Problem solved, right? Well, (laughs) not quite. Less than half of the waste I create in a day is even recyclable. And that's living in a city with actual recycling infrastructure. Then that stuff I do put in the recycling bin, heaps of it is still sent to landfill or shipped to some poorer country to deal with where it might be burned or even dumped in the ocean. I've been guilty of lazy recycling. Throwing things in the bin without cleaning them or even checking if they're recyclable because, well, out of sight is out of mind. I want to rethink my relationship with waste, both as a physical problem but also a psychological one. Is it time I start consuming less stuff? To help me gain some clarity, I'll be talking later to Arta Litorovich. Senior Vice President at P&G, who has spearheaded an initiative to eliminate waste from brands like Head & Shoulders, Aussie, and Herbal Essences. But first, I wanted to talk to someone who's expert on the intersection of waste, consumerism, and the climate crisis. Shilby Chotre is the Director of Communications at Break Free From Plastic, 
a global movement envisioning a future free from plastic pollution. I first heard Shilpi on a podcast from Plastic Free Mermaid and was struck by how simply and directly she broke down the waste crisis. So I invited her onto the show. Shilpi, take it away. My name is Shilpi Chotre, and I'm currently the global communications lead for Break Free from Plastics. We're a global movement of more than 2,000 organizations working all across the world at different points in the plastic pollution life cycle. So we're really focused on tackling this crisis at the root cause and looking at it from a systems change perspective. Could you share with us what your catalyst was for working in this space? The beauty with Break Free from Plastic is I came into plastic in 2014 from an oceans perspective, and I knew there were so many pieces missing from the dialogue and the conversation and the stakeholders that were involved. It was a very white space, for instance. And so coming at it from a global perspective has shown me so much. I'm also from India and going to India my whole life and seeing that they do have a waste problem. But the way that it was described when you see it in the media was that the global South is responsible for this waste crisis, but nobody was talking about where is this waste actually coming from? Why are we facing a waste and consumption crisis today? It really stems from a long history of convenience As much as I detest plastic, it's convenient, it's cheap, and it's efficient. And so when it was introduced in the 50s, it was a huge relief for like the 1950s housewife because they weren't stuck washing dishes all the time. What we didn't know at that time was this product cannot be absorbed by any sort of infrastructure. It's a waste management issue that really needs to start at reducing how much plastic we're putting out in the system. Because yes, we can talk about individual change and lifestyle change, but that amount that we're dealing with right now, no amount of individual lifestyle kind of solutions are going to work. We really need the corporations to stop it at the source. And even though we know that this material is so problematic, it's not being recycled or turned into something else, they're still producing it. They're still pumping it out and they are announcing false solutions that sound really sexy and they get a lot of media attention. But at the end of the day, when we do our brand audits, we see these sorts of prolific wastes appearing every time. So I think policy is really huge. At the individual level, if you do have time and you want to educate yourself about the plastic that's coming into your own waste stream at your house is to do an inventory in your kitchen and your bathroom. Those are the two places that have the most problematic waste. So the numbers at the bottom of plastic products actually mean something. So there's one through seven and generally three through seven is absolute garbage. It's not going to be turned into anything else. That's a lot. So if you can look at the number and the types of product that you're throwing into either your trash or your recycling bin, throwing a plastic item in a recycling bin, that's actually not going to be recycled. Might as well go in the garbage. And actually it should go in the garbage because going through the recycling system is expensive. And we work with a lot of mission-based recyclers who tell us that We'd actually rather the person just throw it in the garbage because it comes here and it creates a whole sorts of mess because it can't actually be absorbed. So, you know, going through your own trash is actually extremely empowering. We do it a couple times a year and then actually write down where it's hard to reduce. And that's where you need to focus is like, okay, I know I can switch to refillable here or reusable here. Or you know what? I don't need to buy this. I can make it. And so this is just a really important 
empowering tool that at the individual level, it can make a difference, right? And you're empowering yourself to then share that information with other people. But from a systems level, I do think policy is where it's at. And they're not at competition with each other. You can do both. You can support a policy and also take it on yourself to say, you know, we really want to reduce at home. And like, what a great way if you are a mom or dad to teach your kids the exercise. It can be really illuminating for little kids as well. I want to also bring that full circle to the communities that are also on the front lines, specifically in the Gulf South that are dealing on the extraction side of things. So plastic, of course, comes from oil and they are created by the massive petrochemical companies. So if you see who's funding the plastic lobbyists, it's often the oil industry. And so like Break Free from Plastic, many of our members are Black and Latino communities that have to live on the fence line of production. And it's an extremely disheartening place to be with so many health impacts. And communities that are mostly blue collar workers that are not getting the same treatment from the people that work at these oil companies that are the suit and tie people. So there's discrepancies throughout the plastic pollution life cycle. And the US and Europe and Australia have been shipping our waste to these countries and these communities. And sometimes they end up in the landfill. A lot of times they're just openly dumped and burned. And the way we bridge that gap is actually bringing people from these communities, vulnerable communities, people that are most impacted into leadership roles. It's not just bringing them to the table. No, they need to be the ones really driving this conversation and in a role that they can actually influence that change. It would be really interesting to hear from you the intersection of kind of mental well-being and consumerism. And what are some of the principles that this consumerism engine is dependent on to continue running? A lot of the products that have problematic packaging is food products. And a lot of the food are full of preservatives, they're full of sugar, um, but they're addicting. And it's also cheap. There are tactics that corporations use, whether it's sexy marketing, it's the product itself that has an addictive ingredient or um, a child that's like gets obsessed with a sugary drink. It's a single use plastic bottle as well. So I think there are ways that corporations continue pushing these problematic packaging and products and get people hooked. So we need to counter that with sustainable solutions with movements like Break Free from Plastic and all the organizations that are working to counter that and actually sell a vision of a plastic-free world that's healthier, that's more sustainable, that's going back to our roots. And that's not obsessed with this cycle of consumerism. And I think in some more affluent areas, we're moving towards this, that it's not the cool thing to do anymore to buy, buy, and buy. It's cool to go to a thrift store and to upcycle something and trade with your girlfriend. It's not exciting to have all the stuff anymore, but being really purposeful about what we buy and how long it lasts. And does it have an element of sharing with the community? I mean, I think there's a lot of value in that too. And not to take credit from the communities around the world that have been thinking and operating this way for so long, but unfortunately, they're just now marketed this certain lifestyle and this sort of culture of convenience that the global north, for instance, has had for so many years. So it gets complicated because you don't want to go into a country and say, no, you should go 
back to your reusable lifestyle. Sure, it was a little bit slower, maybe not as efficient. They want this modern way of living. And unfortunately, sometimes that involves a lot of plastic. So it's balancing going back to our root, but also being cognizant that some communities might not want to go back so easily because it is convenient. What do we actually have to gain a society from being less wasteful? One of the campaigns that comes to mind is the story of Stuff Project. And as you can see in the name, they're really looking at why are we so obsessed with stuff and how do we counter that with more experiences, spending time with family, with friends, getting outdoors. And one of the campaigns that we do every year is on Black Friday. So Black Friday, if you don't know, it's a big holiday in the United States, which is right after Thanksgiving. And all of the corporations market big, big, big deals like box office deals, like 70% off. And people line up for blocks and blocks and blocks outside of like a Best Buy to get these deals. And the campaign to counter this is Buy Nothing Day. So we're using the same marketing tactics as Black Friday, but it's being smart with their approach of how do we sell the motivation to buy nothing and not participate in Black Friday. So we need to be looking at ways to counter those marketing approaches with values-driven marketing as well and sort of turn it on its head a little bit. I love this idea from Shilpi of countering the obsession to buy more stuff with values-based messaging that compels us to buy less. I'd like to go to some younger voices now to understand how others are navigating their eco-anxiety around waste and consumption. My name's Connor Rutherford. I live in lovely, rainy North Yorkshire in the UK. 24 years old, climate change has arguably completely shaped my outlook on life. It conjures up feelings of stress, fear, and helplessness. The concept of the world tipping past its planetary boundaries is scary. And then regards to waste and consumerism, I was always obsessed with having the nicest clothes and the newest phone. It is this perpetual drive to continually consume, which has got us to where we are today. I definitely say now that I've changed my ways and improved massively. Georgie van Heerden. I am a 22-year-old political science and history graduate living in South Africa. Eco-anxiety. Now, this term is a new term to me, and I think it's apt in describing the way that so many of us environmental activists feel this feeling of completely being overwhelmed, possibly even feeling isolated or alone in our capacity to do something or to take action. Now, there was a stage where I was obsessive and basically self-deprecating when it came to what I could buy for disposing of something that I knew wouldn't be recycled or purchasing something unsustainable and then thinking that it would instantly make this issue worse and then going ahead and picturing all the things that I had thrown away in the past and that also kind of snowballed so there you have it I had arrived at eco-anxiety <laughs> reaching out to people and collaborating with them to make a widespread smaller difference is a lot better than you in your room frantically sorting through all your waste to recycle as most of it and be as sufficient as possible. I think that's the best way to cope with it because it does make a greater impact at the end of the day. My name's Jim. I am from Cornwall in the UK. I'm currently studying in Brighton. I'm 21 years old. So one of the biggest environmental issues of healthcare is waste, especially during COVID times. The amount of single-use plastic has rocketed. And every time I am in a healthcare setting and I have to throw away heaps and heaps of plastic, 
in a relatively short amount of time, that does get to you. And I'm not the only one that feels this. There's many, many healthcare professionals who are upset by the amount of waste and plastic usage within healthcare. And there must be a better way of doing it. I understand that infection prevention is the priority. And of course, I agree with this, but new ways of doing things are needed in healthcare. I never considered myself to have any sort of anxiety or depression or anything like that. But having done the workshops with Force of Nature, I sort of had this realization that yes, I get feelings of despair and panic and guilt in the face of climate change. My name is Grace Newton. I'm from County Durham, UK. I live in Canada and I'm 31 years old. I think that everyone has eco-anxiety in one way or another. It really just comes down to how good you are at denial. Sometimes if I start to think about the existential dread too deeply, I just feel completely overwhelmed by a feeling of hopelessness and lack of power. Having experienced social anxiety for a long time, the combination of eco and social anxiety can be a real killer. I have eco-anxiety about waste and consumerism a lot. If I mess up with recycling, I feel like I'm being judged. Similarly, being vegan, isn't it wasteful to buy all this vegan cheese? Think of the plastic, think of the transportation costs. Do I buy this t-shirt which has been ethically made and helped support so-and-so organisation? I think we just need to remember that as activists we're only human and we don't need to apologise for existing in a society. Having an outlet to voice your concerns, a friend who cares as much as you do, can often be a rarity. Connor mentioned the pressure he felt to be current, to buy more stuff in order to keep up appearances, while Grace shared the pressure many of us feel to apologise for simply existing. I've invited our resident psychotherapist, Caroline Hickman, to help us make sense of some of these feelings. Caroline is from the University of Bath and has spent years researching children and young people's relationship with nature, as well as our feelings about the climate and ecological crisis. Here she is. The climate crisis is a symptom of our failure to care and our failure to appreciate and respect our own lives and the lives of others and the planet on which we're living. There is this fantasy about this being limitless as a resource, but we're overstepping that limit now. The Amazon is now discharging more carbon into the atmosphere than it's absorbing. We've reached the limits. This fits with this idea of narcissistic entitlement that I think we struggle with, where there's this sort of psychologically empty place inside ourselves. And we all have this to some greater or lesser degree. We can feel empty and we can feel hollow. And we try to fill that emptiness with consumerism, more things. And we feel entitled in the West. We feel entitled to do this. There's this idea of exceptionalism. And it's that that's largely responsible for the climate crisis. As soon as I hear the word consumer, I I have this image of this passive consumption that we sit and consume. Things are given to us and we consume. I think it it gives us this infantile, passive-aggressive relationship with the stuff we then consume, that it's meant to make us happy, it's meant to please us, it's meant to service our bodies, it's meant to make us lovable, it's meant to give us something. We consume for a purpose. And because it fails to give us what we want, which is happiness, 
I think we are frustrated and then we try and consume more. One of the very first, as you know, I've been talking with children and young people about eco-anxiety and climate change for nearly 10 years now. And three years ago, pre-COVID, just before Christmas, I went to do a research interview with a 10-year-old boy and his dad met me at the door, said, oh, I don't know if he knows much about climate change. Anyway, he did. And this 10-year-old described climate change and the climate crisis as like a crocodile the size of a continent that was crawling over the face of the earth and it was consuming and consuming and eating and eating and eating and it would never be satisfied. It could never find enough to satisfy its hunger and it was rotting from the inside out and its scales were falling off and it was rotting and eating and rotting and eating and dad sat over the other side of the room slightly traumatized listening to his 10-year-old personify climate change in this way. But this 10-year-old understood about that relationship between waste and death and consumption and overconsumption. He understood those relationships. So I think inherently we do understand those relationships. But I think people can feel frustrated and angry if they're asked to stop consuming because it feels like something's being taken away from you. So it feels as though you're losing something. Most of the conversations about addressing the climate crisis are framed in terms of giving up things, which goes against that consumer culture. Whereas actually we need to think about it as gaining things, creating things. It's powerful to hear Caroline reflect on how much of the climate conversation is framed around what we need to give up because it's at odds with our hyper-consumptive culture, rather than focusing on all that's to gain. When I first started out as an activist, exploring the role of business in driving the climate crisis, I learned the term FMCG, a fast-moving consumer goods company. In other words, a company that profits from selling stuff as quickly and cheaply as possible. In many ways, this model is the very epitome of what we've talked about in today's episode on waste and consumerism. It's hard to envisage how an FMCG can ever be truly sustainable, but I'm curious to hear from someone on the inside. I've invited Arta Latorovich, Senior Vice President at Procter & Gamble, to share his view. Before we dive in, here's the DL on P&G. 63% of consumers in Europe say that they are actively trying to reduce the amount of waste they produce, and close to half state that they're looking for refills to help them achieve this. P&G has set out to provide sustainable beauty products without the compromise. By the end of 2021, P&G Care Europe will have reduced their use of virgin plastic by up to 50%, compared to when they started their sustainability sustainability journey back in 2016. They're achieving this through a two-pronged approach. They're using recycled plastic in their bottles and are introducing the good refill system, creating an aluminium bottle and recyclable pouches that use 65% less plastic compared to a regular shampoo bottle. P&G Hair Care in Europe have also reduced greenhouse gas emissions by 41% since 2010 and achieved zero manufacturing waste sent to landfill since 2020. Now that you've heard from P&G, let's speak to Latar. I'm Artur Litarowicz, but my nickname is Litar. I'm a senior vice president for P&G, responsible for healthcare business in Europe. So I would love to hear how you perceive the global challenge of waste and the consumption that is driving it. I think it's a story of the last hundred years. The economy which we have created, which was lifting people from poverty, 
by generating more work related to consumption. So that was a circle which was driving our economy, you know, helping a lot of people. If you compare where we are right now versus uh, hundreds of years ago, for many people it's a much, much better place, particularly in Europe. Yet, over years, we have not scrutinized what is happening to the environment and what kind of impact uh, this type of life, this type of economy built on consumption can have on the planet where we live. And I think that last five years has been probably truly a changing period when it comes to this awareness building. Could you share a bit more, Latar, on how fast-moving consumer goods companies, or FMCGs for short, played a role in driving the problem? As we produce products as an industry, which are consumed frequently, obviously these products come with the packaging, comes with the transportation. So all these has been uh, having an impact on the environment. And I think this awareness that there is negative impact and we as an industry and particularly leading company in the industry need to change it is super clear and I think that for PNG this is part of our commitment we can be a positive force and we want to change this approach to the business what are some of the barriers that you've come up against in trying to actually change the way that we consume stuff I don't think that necessarily there are barriers but I would say there was a change right now which I would say is like a positive coalition between consumer demands and people on the PNG side or you know major corporation side who really want to drive the change. We see that consumer moved from being a passive recipients of the sustainability message to being very active and many of them actually starts to become advocates or even activists in that space. If you just take Europe, roughly 65% of consumer wants to live life which is more sustainable and half of them really demands that the big corporation help them on this journey and I think that as we are seeing what our consumer demands and at the same time we on our side have a lot of people who really want to turn PNG to be this force for growth and force for good so for me it is not a question of barriers it's more now this positive momentum which is out there and of course the moment that you have the positive momentum more innovation will follow I give you an example when uh, last year I was talking with my team and I said I, I really would like us to spearhead some of the efforts for the corporation and set really bold goals for us as a PNG Beauty Europe. And uh, one of them was, let's reduce virgin plastic usage by 50%, not by 2025, by end of this calendar year. And we put it as a goal last year. And, uh, you know, we left room excited and stressed. Excited because everybody really believed that that's the right thing to do. Stressed because nobody had a clue how to deliver it. But what was beautiful is the power of PNG when people started to kind of line up behind this goal, the real uh, miracle happened. We got so many innovative ideas from our people, but also from our partners. And we started to bring them together uh, very fast. What's beautiful here is if we get there, this actually drives confidence that we can go for even bolder goals, the similar kind of very high speed mindset once this one is met. And I see it everywhere in PNG. What does that mean as a company to say, actually, we want people buying less of a thing because that is, in fact, the more sustainable alternative? So our products are really fast moving goods. You typically consume them relatively fast. And I would say the biggest challenge for us is more everything connected with this consumption. Packaging is one of the challenges. How can we make sure that what we do, what we provide to consumer as a valuable product is also served in the packaging where recycling or reusing 
usage is built into the system. Good refill system is one of the answers. We have more answers and again, you will gradually see them coming to the market. Other thing is that can we work with the consumer to actually help them reduce the CO2 emission when they consume our product? Fantastic example from our colleagues in the laundry business, where thanks to the superior product technology, now you can do the, your laundry at the 30 degree with uh, all tough stains, etc. This job can be still done at the 30 degree. And just lowering the temperature from 60 or 40 to 30, that's probably the biggest contribution you can have to reduce the emission of the CO2. So I think that for us and our products, the key challenge moving forward is how can we really help with the consumption, which does not generate waste? How can we make sure that as we produce and as we transport our products, we do it in the sustainable way? And finally, how can we drive innovation, which will really have a positive impact on how we consume and how much CO2 is being produced? In terms of your leadership style, what of that do you want to see modeled in other leaders from even competitor companies? I would probably challenge their thinking about sustainability. I think that most likely they still see sustainability as a cost for our business, for generally for P&G. Sustainability is part of creating a superior solution for the consumer. I think this is so clear, at least in the fast-moving consumer goods, that unless you really make the integral part of your solution, you cannot create superior offering for consumer anymore. So the first thing is to challenge really the thinking on sustainability. It's not a cost. It actually can be a positive driver of your proposition. And frankly, with some of the solutions we are seeing from regulators, like the tax on the virgin plastic, etc., you will see that there are more elements which actually make sustainability a very valid business model. We also look at it as a way to open up for a great partnership, because I don't think that the sustainability should be your source of competitive advantage. Sustainability should be something which you share. And frankly, when I see in, in my industry that any competitor brings something which is more sustainable for consumer, I don't look this as a challenge. I actually look at this as a motivation to say, wow, that's great. How can we make sure that our products are equally or even more sustainable in that space? What can we learn? What can motivate us here? What can we share? This is another thing. It's like, can we share things so the whole industry gets to the more sustainable place? So don't look at sustainability as a competitive edge, but look at it as a really systematic solution for the whole industry. Because, you know, frankly, we need to do it for all the businesses to really thrive in the future. What do you want the legacy to be that we're handing on to future generations? I was uh, privileged to sail, you know, many places around the world, scuba diving, and I've seen most amazing phase of nature. And my personal dream is that my children, my grandchildren, one day can go to the same places and experience what I did and that the reefs are still there. They are still alive and beautiful. So if I can do my little things to contribute to this dream, for sure I will. When I walk through downtown London, I'm bombarded with ads selling me things to feel better. When I open Instagram, these ads are personally tailored to what the algorithm knows about my wants, needs, and insecurities. 
perhaps best epitomized with a national day to celebrate buying stuff, our culture classifies us first and foremost as consumers. I could relate to Connor, sharing the pressure he feels to stay current and fit in, as well as the crippling guilt shared by Grace of merely existing. Wherever you look, it's easy to see a culture built on extrinsic values, competition, commodification, consumption, over intrinsic ones of contribution, community, and connection. Perhaps this is the source of the void within us that as Caroline spoke to, we try to endlessly fill. I thought her framing of a passive aggressive relationship was a really interesting one. We're promised that buying something will make us more lovable or feel happier, but when it fails to give us what we want, we become increasingly frustrated and try even harder to fill that hole by consuming more. For many of us in a bubble of climate privilege, there's a sense of entitlement too. Because we slave away in nine to five jobs, because we work hard, we feel entitled to spend that money how we like, to treat ourselves, regardless of the very real consequences to people and our natural world. Yet, people's attitudes are changing. Latar has witnessed a shift in the business mindset, prompted by people choosing not to be passive recipients of products, but activists within this space. Deciding to exercise our agency on this personal level can both help us to reinforce those intrinsic values. For example, opting for experiences that connect us with others over products that feed our consumption, as well as begin to change the dominant narrative. Someone told me recently that young people are powerful change makers, not only because of our passion or how we vocalize our care for the issues, but because we shape the current culture. This has been true for every generation, and this is critically important in the context of the climate crisis, when we recognize that it is as much a cultural crisis as a technological one, a symptom of the cultural values held up by our predecessors. On a systemic level, we need to fundamentally transform the economic engine behind waste and consumerism. We need to change an advertising industry that preys on people's feelings of inadequacy. We need to defend the rights of nature. We need to stop subsidizing products that are harmful to us and price things according to their true cost, including their environmental and social price tags. On a personal level, we can instigate this change by reflecting on our relationship to what we consume, where our motivation stem from and who benefits from those motivations. To Caroline's point, this doesn't need to mean giving things up. Indeed, we humans are inherently loss averse, so trying to do the whole self-sacrifice thing isn't very compelling or sustainable. Instead, we can reframe our relationship through what there is to gain. Simply thinking consciously about the food I eat, the clothes I wear, the electronics I buy is an act of rebellion against a system predicated on my mindless consumption. I can begin to ask myself if I will feel better buying a new shiny thing or using my creativity to upcycle something I already have. If I want to shift through the racks and racks of the same clothes on the high street or find something unique by rummaging through a charity shop. If I want to eat something quick and easy, wrapped in plastic, or invest the time in preparing a meal that makes me feel really good. My individual decisions contribute to a tapestry of values that reflect what we as a generation determine to be important. To me, that is true power. The power to change the world. To me, that is true power. The kind of power to change the world. Next week on the show, we'll be discussing politics. We have amazing conversations lined up. You'll hear from Colom Cain Salvador, co-founder of Atlas, a movement to mobilize people beyond national borders, 
to solve global problems, as well as Jeremy Oppenheim of Systemic. As always, you'll be hearing from Young Voices, our resident psychotherapist, and me, your host, Clover Hogan. See you there. How did today's episode make you feel? Let us know by heading over to Force of Nature's Instagram at forceofnature.xyz and dropping us a comment or DM. We've also partnered with Shilpi over at Break Free From Plastic to bring you some pretty epic content. Be sure to head over to the gram and join the conversation. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, you know what to do. This podcast was brought to you by Force of Nature and One Fine Play. From One Fine Play, James Bishop is the executive producer. Kazra Feruzia is the editor and producer. Connor Foley is the producer and researcher with additional creative support from Selena Christofidis. Running Force of Nature takes a village and would not be possible without Phoebe Hansen, Kathleen Hamilton, Alejandra Arias, Sasha Wright, Julia Sams, Vida Han, and Deneb Jardin. As a reminder, if you're feeling particularly overwhelmed by eco-anxiety, you can find a whole host of resources to support you at forceofnature.xyz. Additionally, if you are struggling with your mental health, please consult a medical professional. (laughs) 